Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. And today we are talking about that record-breaking wave of women running for office. And we have two all-star guests to talk about it. Our first guest today is Gina Ortiz-Jones. And if she's elected, she would be the first out lesbian, the first Iraq war vet, and the first Filipina ever elected to Congress from Texas. Yes, Texas. And her race is close, believe it or not. Second guest is Stephanie Shriok. She's been on the show before. She's the head of Emily's List, which has given millions to pro-choice women uh, running for Congress. But I ask her, why didn't you support the superstar in Democratic politics this year, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? And you can hear her answer next on It's All Political. Are you feeling overwhelmed by technology? Do you suffer from a nagging fear of missing out? Join Chronicle Managing Editor Fernando Diaz as he talks to a panel of industry experts about the effects of technology on privacy and ways you can protect yourself. It's Chronicle Chats at Herbst Theater on September 17th. You can purchase tickets at sfchronicle.com chats. Gina, welcome to It's All Political. Thank you. As, I'm happy to be here. Yes, we're sitting here in San Francisco in the in the San Francisco Chronicle talking today. So you are here um, for a, uh, a luncheon fundraiser for Emily's List, That's which right. is supporting you, one of the early supporters. Yeah. Uh, but wanted to hear a little bit about your backstory. Yeah. If... You were elected to Congress. When? When? when okay. So, we, you know, you can have the when. I'll go with the if. We can't say when anymore after the last presidential Understood. election. Yeah, you know, um, You would be the first Iraq war veteran to serve from Texas, the first Asian American to serve in Congress from Texas, the first woman to re- represent your district, and the first out member in Congress from Texas ever. That's right. Okay. I would also be the first Filipina American ever. And the ever, first... Ever. In Congress. In Congress. A lot of firsts. So, but let's back up to where you got there. You, sure. Your, uh, your um, upbringing was very humble, mm-hmm. single mom. Mm-hmm. You had uh, reduced lunch growing mm-hmm. up. Tell us a little bit about your mom raising you. And, yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, folks always like to, to point out the, the first. Um, I think it's more important, though, that um, I am not the last, right? So that's why when I think about the importance of this race, it is about protecting the opportunities that um, allowed me to grow up healthy, get an education, and serve our country. Uh, so, yeah, f- my story starts literally 40 years ago. 40 years ago, my mother came to this country. My mother graduated from the number one university in the Philippines but wanted a chance at the American dream, like so many do. Um, and uh, she came here as a domestic helper. Like so many people, they humble themselves themselves because they know when they come to this country, the sky's the limit. So she came by herself. She came by herself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, she um, very much wanted a chance at what, the, the, again, the promise of this country. So she raised my younger sister and I by herself. Um, and we knew we would give back to the country. I served in national security for 14 years in and out of uniform. My sister is still a proud member of the Navy. You are ROTC scholarship to go yeah, to college. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to your point, I mean, you know, I think there's a special place in heaven for single mothers. That place is open bar. Uh, the reduced lunch. <laughs> 
<laughs> reduce lunch. I'm glad there's an open bar yeah. section of in heaven. Hey, Jeez, that, hey, for, for single mothers only now. Yeah. Single mothers <laughs> single only. Mo- okay, right? all right. That's, that's, um, I'll go with that. They, uh, yeah, reduce lunch, subsidize housing. Those were critical investments that allowed me to earn a four-year Air Force ROTC scholarship that took me from John Jay High School in San Antonio to Boston University. Why, why'd you want to be in the military? It was a great way, one, for me to give back to a country that gave me so much, literally. Yeah. I mean, my uh, we were reminded every single day uh, that our trajectory in life was in no small part to being born in this country. I mean, literally, my grandmother would, you know, whenever we'd have something or whenever we were acting up, she'd say, you know, your cousin in the Philippines doesn't have that. Your cousin in the, your, you know, your youngest cousin, whether it be an extra scoop of ice cream or, or frankly, like a new pair of shoes. Wow. So it was literally, we were reminded every single day of just how fortunate we were and, and frankly, the need to give back um, to a great country. And so it was, it was giving back and you wanted to be, did you want to fly or? or, or? Um, so the ROTC scholarship, um, I mean, raised by a single mother, there's not a, a lot of money for a rainy day, right. much less an, a public, edu- uh, much less a, an education. Um, uh, frankly, un- unfortunately, as expensive it is now to, to, to get a college yeah, education. Yeah. So for me, it was a wonderful way to, to know how I would go to serve our country, but also have my education paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I uh, was honored to serve as an intelligence officer in the Air Force. I deployed to Iraq. Um, I also served under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, though. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So what was that like when, when yeah. you were doing that? What, explain the, the pressures you're under at that yeah. point. Yeah. Well, you know, the uh, so the Air Force's core values, the first one is... And, and for, for our readers who yeah. don't know or perhaps oh, don't remember those days, uh, you were not allowed to, if you were a, a gay or lesbian, yeah. you weren't allowed to say so. That's right. But you could still serve. It was don't ask. And no one can ask you about it, that's right. but you couldn't tell. That's right. And, um, you know, good point, because sometimes I do, we have, you know, interns on the team, yeah. and, I, and I mentioned to them, uh, don't ask, don't tell, you know, they'll, they'll ask about that. Um, like what? They, they have no idea. They have yeah. no idea. Yeah, I, and so for me, you know, I'm reminded of how far we've come, but mm-hmm. also, frankly, under this administration, how, how much we could lose very, very quickly. Um, and so it was, uh, I was honored again to serve our country um, but it's unfortunate that, again, people ready and able uh, to serve the country were, uh, were unable to, to do so authentically. Um, and so when I think of, of national security, to me, it's not just uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, China, Russia, but also, you know, the pipeline of talent mm-hmm. into national security. How do we develop the talent and how do we, how do we maintain it? Um, but, you know, a little bit of a segue. It's been really interesting way for me, though, to connect with uh, an issue that is so important in my district, which is immigration. Um, and what I say is, look, I'm not a dreamer, um, but you know there are uh, there are 125,000 dreamers in Texas. There's about 3,500 in um, in this congressional district, Texas 23, um, and between wow. California and Texas, that's 45 percent of the country's dreamers. Right. So I think it's important that we keep the promise that we made to these young people, because I know exactly what it's like to have worked hard for something and to live in fear every single day that it could be ripped away from you through no fault of your own. So you felt that then the fear you're referring to is you're serving the military, you're overseas. And and what what would happen if you were outed? The specific fear, I mean, one that sticks out in my mind is when I was that ROTC cadet at Boston University, my scholarship, I still had, our Don't Ask, Don't Tell still applied to me. So I lived in fear every single day that my opportunity to get an education, my opportunity to serve my country, my opportunity to die for my country if need be would be ripped away from me. So while I'm not a dreamer, I have to think about that needless anxiety, that needless fear. The fear is what you can have to Yeah, the fear that, uh, you know, our young students at University of Texas at El Paso or uh, Sol Ross State or, you know, any of our young people that are living with this anxiety that don't have to be. So 
I, you know, I, I know a lot of uh, our, our listeners may be thinking, okay, how do you talk about, you know, if you will be the first or might be the first <laughs> out person uh, serving from Texas, how do you talk about these issues in, in Texas? We're living in the Bay Area. This yeah. is obviously, you know, a mecca for yeah. LGBT, uh, uh, the community. But where you're coming from in Texas, how do you how do you talk about that? And and do you? Yeah. Well, I mean, exactly, uh, exactly. I just did. I talk Is about that, my you connect life. It. That's how you connect. Yeah. But do, I talk about my life experiences. Mm-hmm. These are, you know, uh, some some folks will say, well, you're just playing identity politics. Like I'm talking about my lived experiences. Right. And how that allows me to understand why it's important that we, again, protect investments like uh, reduce lunch, subsidize housing, these types of things that allowed somebody like me to go on to serve our country. Why it's also important, frankly, as somebody as a veteran uh, that is that that knows the, the human cost of war, that we ensure that we're asking the right types of questions about what we're going to do, why we're doing things when we put men and women in harm's way. Um, But I also worked, for example, on my last portfolio in federal government. um, It's called the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. So how do we understand our economic in the context of our national security uh, interests, Mm -hmm. right? And I worked on that portfolio. And I think moving forward, that's that's the new front line, right, as we're seeing the effects of this trade war and some of these misguided economic policies. Because national security, I think, truly starts with a strong middle class, Right, so that's that's public education. That's immigration policy that reflects our values, and that's a healthcare system that that covers everyone. I, um, I want to go back to the trade war and how it affects your mm. district in a second, mm. but let's let's stick with your biography. So you you served through the Obama administration, mm-hmm. and then you were you did you stay on through the Trump administration? Yeah. So I served as a civil, as a civil servant. Mm-hmm. Um, so civil servants serve agnostic of the president, yes. right? Um, and, uh, and except if you're in the deep state, and then you're well, you know, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're not going to get there. <laughs> uh, That's another ridiculous. podcast. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, you know, it, and it's, it, you know, I, I served in public service because I think our, our nation's work, there's no higher calling, mm-hmm. right? And so when folks always ask, you know, was there one moment where you knew you couldn't do any, it, you couldn't do it anymore, you had to step right. away? And, and I, I say, you know, I can't pinpoint anything, but what, what sticks out in my mind, and frankly, you read about it and you hear about it on almost a daily basis, mm-hmm. are how these, these folks that were brought in uh, to be public servants uh, that are interested in neither the public nor service, much less public service, right? Um, and frankly, it was quite clear that I was going to be be able to do very limited, uh, you know, with from within. And I what really... Did they, what did, where did you get the vibe from that, that you were not going to be able to do the job that you had been doing? When you look at the type of folks that were brought in and the leadership, and um, I mean, again, leadership, uh, an organization, the tone, all, the management style, all of that is set from the very top. And mm-hmm. when you have folks that are, frankly, more interested in serving themselves uh, and protecting their own power than in actually, again, serving the people, serving the public, uh, that is that you know that's that's just not how I was raised and how mm-hmm. I think of of, of government. I think uh, you know a member of Congress, for example, does three things. I think they create opportunities, protect opportunities, or erase opportunities. Mm-hmm. They do that with their voting record. They do that with their record of silence. And you and I are seeing how dangerous that silence can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, you know, it's, it's that fundamental approach, this public service, right? I mean, folks say, you know, you haven't been in politics before. It's like, yeah, but I've been in public service. And mm-hmm. I, would, I would argue that's the mindset, that's the skill set that's most absent in Congress now. Did, okay, so when did you make the, the decision to run for office? I mean, because that's a that's a it's a huge decision. Sure. You you knew you would be subjecting. You've been around long enough, and 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 certainly given your life experience, you know you'd be subjecting your entire life experience to public exposure. Sure. What did you? How did you make that decision, and, and why? 
the uh, the decision for me was, um, frankly, you know, I did not want to have to look at myself in the mirror uh, a couple of years from now and things be much worse than they are and say, you know, as fortunate as you've been and seeing what you've seen in other countries where when, it, when women are men minorities are targeted, when government's disregard for conflict of interest has hollowed those countries out, um, and when institutions are under attack and good people don't stand up. You know what this looks like. You kind of know how this story could end. Um, did you do everything that you could do uh, in, uh, you know, to, to serve the country that has given you so much? And I wanted to be able to answer that question the right way. And so when did you, when did you oh, make yeah. that Oh, yeah. So this was probably, um, I don't know, probably, I mean, springtime um, of, of 2017. 17. Yeah. Um, I, I stayed well, on. What were your hesitations? Because I know, you know, traditionally, uh, and the studies uh, show this, that uh, women uh, don't run for office. Yeah. And some of their hesitate, you know, it's the, the old joke is a, a man wakes up in the mirror and says, looks in the mirror and says, oh, I see the, you know, next congressman. <laughs> and the woman makes it there and say, well, I'm gonna, I don't know if I yeah. can do it. I have the, you know, the family and all that stuff. Yeah. Where did, how did you, how did that decision play out for you in that way? For well, me, did you have any doubts or? Uh, for me, I mean, I, I think, um, I just know that there are not a lot of kids that go from reduced lunch right. to executive office of the president, right? So I've yeah. already beat a couple of odds, yeah. um, and I wanted to, again, ensure that I did everything that I could do to to uh, to protect the opportunities that allowed me to do what I've done for our country. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there was some hesitation. I think you know, uh, uh, anyone that has started this process is uh, can always be a little bit daunted, for example, right. by uh, just the sheer amount of resources that are needed to do this. Right, because right? unless like, you come from money, yeah. or you're, if you're tapped into something, that's right. you are, you're starting from ground zero, and I imagine that was your case. That's you, right. You know, there's, no, there's no sugar mama or dad no. helping you out here. Hardly, hardly. Yeah. Not yeah. even a, not even like a... No, uh, sugar uncle. Exactly. Or <laughs> or sugar third cousin. So, um, so, so, what, I don't, I mean, yeah. and, and yet yeah. this is going to be as your opponent said, yeah. uh, the most expensive race in the history of Texas Congress. I mean, we were, $25 million between the two candidates. That's correct? right. That's right. This How was, do you raise that money? That this was already the, the uh, I mean, this was the most expensive congressional race in, in Texas history in 2016. Um, and it will be that again. Um, so, I mean, I think what we, what, what has helped us raise the money, I think, is um, you know people are very much attracted again to somebody that is coming at this with a public servant's mindset, mm -hmm. people, someone that is doing this for the right reasons. I mean, to, to me, when I talk about healthcare, it's not it's not a talking point. I talk about you know having come back from Iraq, my deployment, um, and and my mom sharing with me that while I was deployed, she was diagnosed with cancer, had already had the surgery to have it removed, um, and was already undergoing chemotherapy. So I made oh the God. decision right then. Exactly, uh, you'd have to meet. Was, was she covered or? Or not? It, she was a, yeah, she's a public school teacher, okay. so she had insurance. Um, but again, it's experiences like that that show me that we've got to you, you've got to do better. You know, your healthcare shouldn't be based on how much you make or where you live. Um, but I was also raised by a single mother, right? Mm. And so uh, I know exactly what it's like when your health insurance plan is quote unquote. I hope you don't get sick. So yeah. uh, these are there. There were so many issues, um, and when I talk about my life experiences and why these matter so much to me, um, and then also again the public servants mindset. But but talking about these issues. Um, as really core to our long-term strength, right? I think that's sometimes absent from the conversation. You know, people are, are talking about, uh, um, well, you know, we've got to do this, we've got to save money here, but look, we've got to we've got to invest in a way that really strengthens strengthens our middle class. Because again, I've seen what happens in countries when you don't have a, str a strong middle class and what that does to to their economy. Um, let's talk about the, the practicalities of running. Um, 
you know, here in California uh, and elsewhere in the country in progressive quarters, you know, people have been talking about when's Texas going to turn blue? Mm. And a lot of it hinges on turning out the Latino vote. Mm. And I'm sure that's uh, key to your district sure. as well. Uh, will this be the year? <laughs> Maybe the state won't turn blue, but wh- how do you, what are you trying to do to turn out uh Latino voters. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it dovetails a little bit on, on on what I was just talking about, which is you know talking about the issues that matter, mm-hmm. right? Talking about the fact that one in six Texans is uninsured, mm-hmm. right? One in ten kids in the country goes to school in Texas. Forty-five percent of our kids in Texas rely on CHIP or Medicaid for insurance, right? The fact that a, a, a woman in Texas having a baby is five times more likely to die during that process than if she had that baby in California. That is a remarkable so stat that I saw. They read wrong. Like, it's like it's crazy. We we have to show folks what's at stake. Um, what's on the ballot. I mean, it's not just, you know, a candidate that's on the ballot. It's really a set of issues, a set of values that's on the ballot. And so in, it's frankly, it, to answer your other question, uh, you know, that's how we've been successful, I think, is talking about the issues. Not only, you know, we've got a lot of smart folks in Congress, but we don't have enough folks that have the courage to do the right thing on these issues, right? And so I think that's what people are investing in, and that's why we've been successful thus far. we also don't have enough uh, people in Congress who have, you know, lived a life like you have. I mean, there's most of the people in Congress are millionaires. That's right. Literally millionaires. Even Bernie Sanders, who rips on millionaires, is a millionaire. Um, So do you think that's part of it? Do you think that that's... I think you're exactly right. I think when you look at the demographics of Congress, uh, they are very far from the demographics of our country. Um, And uh, I think that that's part of it. I think, um, you know, the fact that anybody in this country would... Uh, be deterred from wanting to serve uh, their communities as a member of Congress only because they can't raise a certain amount of money. I mean, that's ludicrous. That's yeah. crazy, right? right. Um, and I think that's why there's so many folks, uh, and I'm already be part of that group that is saying, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to do this, and that's why. Um, uh, we just know just how important these times are and, and how we, if we are not represented at the table, if we don't actually take the steps to ensure that we're represented, then we'll continue to be, uh, you know, challenged in the way that we are. Okay, so let's talk, let's see how progressive you are. Okay. okay. <laughs> Where are you on, uh, you know, we had uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez come uh-huh. through town a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously she's talking about uh, she wants free college tuition. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you, where are you at on that? Well, I think this is, uh, this is... When I look at my district, the investments that are uh, most needed, because only one in five folks in my district uh, has a college education. Mm-hmm. So to me, the focus of investing in, 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 um, in quality education is actually much more return on investment is higher when we look at advanced skills and trade schools, right? Mm. This is, that's where, that's just the reality when only, again, one in five folks has a college education. Right. You said um, your high school, when you went to high school there, was uh, 900 people started and 500 people finished. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so, um, I mean, I think there are some long-term fixes. I mean, the the, the cost of, of higher education is is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and but you don't think it should be free? We should be going to that route. I think there are other ways. I mean, I think this is this. I think that's something that we can we can move to at mm-hmm. least uh, you know debt-free college. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think. Uh, but when I look at you know what is going to be the most useful um, in in the in the near term, I think it is really you know making sure that we invest in the things that um, that reflect the needs of the community. And how about Medicare for all? Where are you on that? Yeah, I think we need to move to a healthcare system that covers everyone. I mm-hmm. think um, I think what we have to do though is is move in a way that doesn't scare the bejesus out of out of, out of everyone and um, and 
but this is the number one issue that comes up in the district: healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. Um, and so I think there are some some ways in which you know if we wanted to, um, uh, if, if we looked at, for example, lowering the age at which people were um, um, available to, to tap into Medicare. I mean, that's that's something. I mean, frankly, Texas is also a state that did not expand under the ACA. Mm-hmm. So there are 2.2 million people in the country that would have insurance if their governors expanded. 600,000 of those people uh, live in Texas. So we have an outsized effect on the, the quality of the um, academic preparedness of our, of our young folks as well as j- just the sheer health. And uh, so you're not quite for uh, Medicare for all, or where are you on that? I mean, I think it's, I mean, there's a number of ways in which we can do this. I don't think, I mean, I don't think anything should be off the table, um, but I think we owe it to at least the discussion. I don't think, I mean, Medicare for all uh, also heavily reliant on, on private insurance, for example. So I think, um, I think, frankly, moving toward a system where the number one incentive is a healthy population is where we need to be. And since we're in San Francisco, we have to ask you the question of the day. Okay. If elected and the Democrats take back the House, sure. would you support <laughs> Nancy Pelosi for for speaker? Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know who's running. And of course, a, a, an oppo ad is dependent on your next <laughs> answer. <laughs> no matter well, what you say. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I don't know who's running. And right. so it is... Well, the, she will be running. Uh Fair. Um, I don't know who else is running. I don't know the full slate of folks. And so it would be premature for me to say, um, you know, whether I would, um, you know, who I would support in that instance. But these are the things when I, what I would be considering when I do take that vote. One, who's going to do the most to protect healthcare? Who's going to do the most to ensure that we have, uh, you know, quality jobs um, and bringing those to to the district? Um, And who's going to do the most to ensure that we have an immigration policy that reflects our values? So that's, that's not a, uh, you're not definitely for Pelosi, but not against her. I don't know who's running. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's, out of most of the answers I hear, that's probably one of the smarter ones because that's, you know, you're not quite taking a stand either way. Um, so tell us about Emily's List and how you're, you're here for the for the lunch and what role do they play in, in, in first-time candidates like yourselves, like yourself? Yeah. And, um, and also, like, what's the biggest thing you've learned as a first-time candidate that you wish somebody had told you about, like back in the spring of uh, 2017 when you first made the leap or decided to to run? What would you wish you had known then that you have learned maybe even the hard way? Yeah. Well, uh, so the easy question first, Emily's List. Um, Wonderful organization, um, and uh, they've been... So, 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 just a wonderful partner throughout, right? Um, in terms of um, helping with recommendations on staff and and um, you know ensuring the the campaign plan itself is is sound. Um, I mean, because you you can imagine there are some folks that did not think uh, a lesbian vet uh, could do well in Texas. Um, yeah. But again, when you look at, uh, but they see beyond that, right? They really they look at the quality of the candidate. They look at um, obviously you've got to be um, you know supportive of of, of women's yeah. right to make mm-hmm. a decision about her own body. Um, of course. Um, and so they uh, they know that, again, when you look at the makeup of Congress, if we want to change it, we've got to intervene because many of the, some of the still decision makers um, uh, um, have uh, made it a um, have made it a little bit difficult for certain folks, as we talked about earlier, if you don't come from a certain background, right? right. And so um, Emily's List has been a key partner. And that's because when you get their blessing, that kind of opens a lot of doors in the Democratic fundraising world. 
Uh, it, it does. I mean, for, yeah, for many folks across the country that want to make sure that a woman has a right to make decisions about her body, yeah. regardless of where she lives in the country, um, they don't have, you know, all the time and resources to do their own kind of research. And so for Emily's list to say, you know, this is this is this is somebody who's good on the issue. This is a great candidate and she can win. Yeah. Right. Like th that's what. And then people what, when they when donors ask you, they say, well, hey, do you uh, did you have you been endorsed by Emily's list? That's right. And then they say and you say yes. And the, or if you say no, then they'll say, well. Call me back when you, when you do. Yeah, all right. It's it's it means they're a big hitter. Um, so, the the second question: What yeah. did you think? What did you wish you had learned as a you know? Because there's a, a ton of uh, first time yeah. candidates this time, a record number of women running yeah. and winning. Yeah, that's um, right. What do you wish you had learned or knew when you first started to run? I think, and I'll be honest, actually, I think, you know, um, uh, my, the Emily's List person I was working with early on, uh, I, I think I got a, a good idea of what it would be like. There's really nothing, uh, you know, like actually going through the experience, though, right? So I don't think anything was necessarily a surprise. Mm -hmm. um, I think what I would have told um, the Gina a year ago, though, is... <laughs> Make sure you get your exercise plan down, and make sure, <laughs> and make sure you keep to it, um, because this, uh, you know, you you need to. Um, you're eating a lot of crap on the road. That's <laughs> what you're saying, right? Correct. You're eating a lot of crap. I know what when, when I'm on the road for for politics. Stuff, I'm having it's, cheese I, fries I, for breakfast. Is that a problem? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not having cheese fries yeah, so for breakfast. Theater of the people. mind, right yeah. there. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think um, uh, to me. One of the things I really enjoy run is doing is running. It just uh -huh. clears my mind and, and helps me focus. And um, uh, I haven't done as good of a job as I, I would have liked to in making sure that it's, it's part of the part of the everyday. So I think that that's the part of it. I didn't realize that um, you know sometimes the schedule can get away from you, and then all of a sudden it's a couple of days and you haven't worked out the way you thought you would. Right, right. So and yeah. you're eating crap. So just <laughs> so just balancing, balancing is is the key. <laughs> okay, Gina, thanks so much for Thank being you. on. It's all political. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. Hey guys, Joe here. If you like political podcasts, you might like to check out Opinion Central. That's the one crafted by my buddy John Diaz. He's the editorial page editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. He and all his pals in the ivory tower here at the Chronicle talk to the big newsmakers of the day. They talk about the big issues of the day. And it's really smart and educational. And it's actually fun for being smart and educational. Check it out. Opinion Central on Apple Podcasts or wherever you obtain your podcasts. Stephanie, welcome back to It's All Political, the first official return guest. How do you, do you feel? Is there any kind of... I, I am any, very honored yeah, yeah. Uh, to be the first <laughs> returning uh, guest and... Uh, as the president of Emily's List, I feel like this is this is the perfect time to have the returning guest be the the well, woman I, who gets to work with all the women who are running for office and I, right and now. And I was recalling, and if I look back, two almost two years ago, we were sitting in the Fairmont Hotel yeah. when you had another one of these, uh, I think another gathering of Emily's List, where we're right where we are right now, mm -hmm. and uh, for at a fundraiser, and you said to me, you said after Hillary Clinton wins. Quote, I believe it's going to plant seeds all over in young women and girls about the importance of public service and running for office. You were, you were half right. <laughs> You're half right. It, it, it is a yep. record number of women running. But how are your challenges different now for Emily's List? Well, it is, there's so much opportunity in the numbers of women coming. And for us, we've had to think through how to manage 
that piece. So, you know, at the end of the 2016 cycle, uh, the very last week of that cycle, where I still believe that Hillary Clinton was, was going to be yes. our president, yes. uh, as did the vast majority of the United States yes. of America, uh, probably even Donald Trump thought that at the, at the moments in that last week. Uh, what I was seeing across the country uh, was this pent-up passion by women who were of all ages and races and geographies who were in these organizing headquarters, in these canvas headquarters for the presidential campaign. And they would pull me aside in the corner and with almost like tears about to come out of their eyes, like, this is going to happen, right? Like, I've been waiting for this and I don't want to show any emotion. I don't want to show any excitement. I don't, I, I'm so nervous, but like this could happen. And I'm like, it's going to happen. I mean, really did. Yeah, and, yeah. and so I saw that emotion and I said to a number of people in the press, I was like, on election night, this emotion is going to explode out. I mean, women have kept this tap down for a long time, and it right. is going to be an explosion. Well, I thought it was going to be an explosion of joy. Yes. What it was is it still was an explosion of, of emotion, and, and even so much that we weren't really ready for it at Emily's List. Because immediately, women started calling the headquarters at Emily's List saying, we want to run. I want to run. I want to take this on. Uh, and, I mean, I'll be fully honest, it took us weeks to sort of gather the, the understanding even of wh how many we were talking about. And we're, the first, we're up to how many? 40,000? Yeah, I mean, as, yeah, we're, uh, we're over 40,000. Um, women who have contacted us. Con yeah, and who come to our website at emlesslist.org and they sign up now. We have a whole system where they yeah. sign up on our Run to Win uh, program uh, that they get into a candidate prepar preparation of. Is there almost too uh, many candidates now? I would know. I don't actually think there are too many candidates. Uh, you know, because I was, I was going to say, 1,000 women signed up in the first four weeks wow. of, of this time period. And so we built out a lot of programs to handle this. Now, of the 40,000, you know, so many are still thinking through what they're going to run for, when they're going to run. They're not obviously running right. right now in 2018, though we do have a historic number of women yeah. running. Uh, and yes, we have women running against each other. Um, we have primaries, and, we, and there's a lot of Democratic men who have stepped up to run too. Yeah. I think this is all very good for the party. Yeah. I think it is bringing new people into the process. I think these, I think the primaries in particular, since we're talking about so many first-time candidates. I mean, yeah. most of them, most of them, uh, are first-time candidates. I would rather have them go through the first debate of their lives in politics on a democratic stage than against the sitting incumbent Republican that they're going to have to debate so in a primary. Is, I think this is good for the candidates. Right. And you, but you guys have taken some blowback, uh, you know, being some, you being uh, you, uh, a couple examples here in California, Dave Min, who lost in the primary for the 45th, in, that's in Orange County. Yeah. And he said he lost to a candidate you endorsed, Katie Porter, who's going up against the Republican. And he blamed in part his defeat for her accepting money from quote unquote Washington interests. That would be you, you guys in part. And in Kansas, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, said uh, when one of his delegates was uh, getting beaten by one of your candidates, that uh, we don't want to be supportive of candidates who simply raise money from the wealthy then put 20, and then put 30 second ads on TV. So what do you say to these folks who kind of are perceiving you as Washington interests, and you are based in Washington, and you do accept money from wealthy people and from other people too. 
you feel like you've kind of, to pardon the expression, become the man, you know, in this. You know, it's, it's, I mean, to, to, how do you respond to some of this criticism? Oh, I, I, you know, I start with, with this, which is look at Congress and tell me what the percentage of women are in that building. Mm -hmm. It's not even 20. Right. It's not even 20%. Look at your legislature and tell me how many women are serving in your legislature right now. Uh, in most cases, it's 20 to 30% if you're lucky. Actually, in California, we started slipping in the last two election right. cycles, you know, and because we've picked up three, women have picked up three seats uh, in the last year, we're back up to 25%, 25%. So uh, if that makes us the establishment, <laughs> uh, we have a really strange definition in this country of establishment, yeah. right? We, we still have to do a lot of work to help bridge over some of the obstacles women candidates still have. And one of those is raising money. And in fact, there was a story in the Washington Post yesterday uh, that laid out that our women candidates in this great year are still raising 17% less than their male candidates are. That is a lot better than when we started 35 years ago, well, was which was there was percentage. there wasn't even a I, there wasn't even a percentage. Yeah. I mean, nobody would give money to women because they didn't think women should even be running, or if they did, they were giving half the amount. Uh, and so when we go in for somebody like Katie Porter, uh, who is like passionate with a consumer protection background, uh, who has you know the support of your own senator in California, Senator Kamala Harris, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, and we were honored to do that and to help bridge some of the obstacles uh, that she was facing in, in raising money with our membership, which is, is not the you know, dark money membership. You can go to the FEC and look at exactly who gives us money. Everything is public at MLA's list. Uh, and, and 55 to 60% of our contributions come from individuals who are given less than $200. Mm. You know, we are really still... Uh, you know, at our foundation, women and good men who support us with a little bit of money because they want to make a change. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's who we are. And so I'm, I'm proud of the work we're, we're doing and, and, and we do it well and we're strategic sure. about it. We put money where our, where our support is, where we can. And so when we went in to help elect Sharice Davids in Kansas 3 that you just mentioned, uh, who is a member of the Ho-Chunk Nation, who was bringing an entirely different perspective into the conversation. Yes. Like, that is a worthy She's goal. A, a, a gay Native American. Yes, yes, she, she uh, you know, she's a member of the LGBTQ community. Um, the Ho-Chunk Nation is a, a tribe in the, in the country. And, uh, you know, this country has never had, never, zero times, elected a Native American woman to the United States House of Representatives. It's a sea of firsts here at the luncheon. Uh, we saw some of that. One other thing that I noticed at the luncheon today, you had you featured several of your of your all stars. So you're trying to you know push over the finish line, and that was sort of the common theme. If folks are close, and you want to yeah. highlight them, um, very few mentions of the T word, Trump. Um, what, how do you do? You counsel folks about how to deal with Trump. He sucks so much of the oxygen up. How do you? How do you talk to the candidates that you support? What advice do you give to them about dealing with, what do you think about Trump? What do you think about the tweet today, you know, yeah. from pesky reporters <laughs> and others, well, and, and others, the, and others, well, and other you, citizens? You, you said it. I'm going to not put it that quite that way, but yeah. when they're out 
talking to voters, which yeah. is most of what these candidates yes. do, uh, they're not getting asked about Trump's tweet of the day or Trump statement or Trump, you know, pulling away, you know, people's uh, intelligence or you know, um, uh, access to intelligence. I was like, they're not. This is not what voters are focusing on. Um, voters are extremely concerned about health care and what's going on, and that the Republican Congress in particular has stripped away access to health care. I mean, so, what we tell our candidates is this. Trump is everywhere. <laughs> like you don't need to talk about him. You just—he's like in the air. He's—he is in every newspaper. He's on every radio station. He's in every tweet. He's in every news feed. He's like on every channel right. all the time. Yeah. Voters are looking for hope, future thinking. What are we going to do next? Voters want some calm to the chaos, and are looking for leadership. And so we tell our candidates connect with with the voters with your story and how you have shared values and how you're going to take those shared values and make their lives better. Mm. That's what they're looking for. And these are and that's very, what's working. very untraditional stories uh, as, as the, that we heard today. Um, speaking of untraditional stories, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She wasn't here in, in California and San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. She, I was there in the room. She lit up the room yeah, like I have not seen. It was full of... Uh, young people and young people of color. Uh, unusual right. for many political events. As yeah. you, know. you guys did not endorse her. Do you feel like you whiffed on her or what happened? You know, we, you know, we've made, you know, these decisions are always very hard for yeah. us, but, but we have a lot of candidates. That, well, we have, there is a lot of candidates and the truth is, is we just are here in the business of adding women to the Congress and we're not in the business of you know, typically going against Democratic incumbents right. who are pro-choice, right. and, and she was going particularly in a cycle like this, where we have such opportunity to take take seats, you know, and take back the majority. So much of our focus has got to be in picking up red seats, which right. is where a lot of that is. Um, so she was not the only one. There's not a lot, but there's a number of of candidates, Democrats, both women and men, who are challenging incumbent Democrats and. Uh, and we sort of watch that from afar, um, knowing that our resources are better spent in getting the majority back uh, in a cycle like this. That being said, Alexandria is extraordinary and an important voice uh, in the party. Uh, and I think she's going to make a very, very strong member of Congress. And our job is to make sure that there's, you know, 23 other women at a minimum uh, from red to blue districts coming in to serve with her uh, and hoping that she'll be part of a very, very large, diverse class of freshmen coming into the House. And you said you made that promise to Leader Pelosi. We are in Leader Pelosi's city right now, a minority leader of the House. Uh, but Pelosi has become an issue in the campaign. Just, I think it was today or the last couple of days in, um, in Sharice David's district. They're hitting her with the uh, ad that you are... A, uh, you or she is a Pelosi liberal. In, in the next couple of weeks, I reported this week that even in California, they're going to start hitting the House candidates with, um, you know, tying, trying to try, tie some of these Democrats, including uh, Katie Porter, I believe, uh, as a Pelosi liberal. What do you tell your candidates to say about that? They're even doing it against Senator John Tester in Montana, <laughs> my former yes. who I used to work for. Yes. I was like, he, they know he's in the Senate, yes. right? And this is the House, and they're, which which says to me this: 
The Republicans have nothing to run on, and they have nothing to talk about. They can't even talk about their tax cut because their tax cut's actually causing huge problems. It's increasing the deficits. It's not affecting uh, people's individual lives. It's not that popular. Like they have nothing to say, and so their their best shot here is to like try to frame this about some liberal boogie woman in this case, mm-hmm. uh, and. I just, I, it might be motivating to the Republican base for money and maybe some support in the base. But I'm telling you, independent voters, this is not what's going to drive them. They want solutions. I mean, the Republicans. So, what your internal like, polls say, your polling says that this, this is not moving anyone? Yeah, I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen polling that's showing that it's moving voters. That it's not moving. I just okay. am not moving voters. I mean, folks have opinions, but, um, but is that what they're going to go vote on? And I would argue no. That's not the case, you know. And we've got somebody in in Leader Pelosi, who has an extraordinary record of of service. Who I argue was one of the best speakers we've ever had. There is the Affordable Care Act because of her. Uh, you could probably argue that the economy was saved because she was able to corral enough votes to get packages passed in two thousand seven, eight, and nine. Uh, and so she has an incredible record. She's powerful. She's smart. She's good. So why wouldn't the Republicans want to take her down? Mm. They're so terrified by her power. Not. And so they have succeeded in, in branding her as, as, as something really scary. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't want her to step aside to take herself off the table as an issue for Democrats? No, I think, well, this is the thing I love about later Pelosi. She is so smart and strategic. She's going to do what she thinks is best. Yeah. And she, said to, she has said that to everybody. She's like, here's the thing. Let's get the majority back and then go from there. Yeah. And that's what we say to our candidates, too. And our, and our candidates make their own decisions on this matter. It was like, if I were you, I'd just say, hey, I got to focus on winning this. I'm not even there. Like, right. let's win this thing uh, and let's stay focused on this and, and make you decisions from there. You Gina Ortiz Jones very well because that's exactly what she said to me when I asked her the question <laughs> in the other part of this podcast. Um, now, if she wins, she would be the first Asian American to serve in Congress from Texas, the first woman to represent that district in Congress. Mm-hmm. She would also be the first out LGBT member to serve anywhere in Congress from Texas. From Texas, yeah. Um, now, when we, uh, you know, uh, socialist Californians, they think, <laughs> could someone like that actually win in Texas? Are we, is, is, is she nuts? What, what kind of chance does she have? And the answer is yes, someone like that can win in Texas because yeah. it's not about all of, of the categories we put on Gina Ortiz-Jones, it is about her passion for her community and her ability to get you know, on the ground and talk to these voters about what's going on in their lives right. uh, and relating uh, to, to what's happening in the 23rd District of Texas. Uh, you know, we always tell our candidates, the most important job you have is to listen. And she's done just a phenomenal job of going and really understanding the concerns going on. And this is a border district. There's a lot of challenges going you said this on. This is the, the largest. It's the It's the largest, or it's the district that has the largest part of the border and the country uh, in the south. And so it is a huge amount of the Mexican-United States border. And so they have such, such challenges there. Immigration uh, Detention and, Center there? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna guess there's more than one. Yes, but I know well, there's yeah, one that we've seen in the news. Yes. yes. You know, it stretches from El Paso to San Antonio. 
Yeah, which is I like mean, massive. Which is massive uh, for, you might, most of us would have to look at a map to know how yes. massive that is, but it's massive. Uh, and so she, you know, she brings such great life experience, you know, serving this country, I mean, in the Air Force, serving in Iraq. I think it's just such a different life perspective uh, that's sort of capturing the imagination of voters and in, in Democrats, independents, and I would argue a lot of Republicans. Like, okay, we are looking for somebody different and somebody who's who's going to bring a fresh perspective, and she, that is exactly who she is. It's and a district that's, why this that's is in flipped play. back and forth several times over the last uh, uh, few cycles. Yeah. And uh, it's a lean Republican, I think, slightly right now. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. Uh, so, but she does have a chance. Okay, yeah. so you, you offered a prediction when we were here two years ago. What is your prediction for November that I can throw back in your face? I know. The next time I mean, talk. For like, your third appearance. This is going to be, I see how this is going to go now. <laughs> for your third appearance on my political. Uh, <laughs> Democrats are going to take back the House. They Democrats will. are going to take back the House. Okay. I'm not sure I'm going to put numbers on that take back. Uh, as you heard today, I have, you know, promised Leader Pelosi we'd we'd try to deliver 23 for just at Emily's list alone. It's a big lift. I'm not sure. That's a, like, that's a very that's big lift. That's a though. big lift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that being said, we're in posi- We have 35 to 40 seats. We Emily's list have 35 yes. to 40 seats that are in play. That, that are, are in play. Yes, okay. absolutely. That are absolutely in play. Uh, most of which are trending the right direction, but some of them are in places uh, that are what we'd say, you know, Republican advantage of nine points. Hmm. Like that's true. I mean, we are in some pretty. Tough, yeah. You know, I'm, I have all intentions of doing all I can to try to pick up that that seat in Montana. That hasn't been Democratic for a long time. Uh, but we got a candidate up there who's in play, who's putting it in play. That's that's a big piece of it. I, I said earlier, Laura Underwood, who's running, Lauren Underwood, who's running in Illinois' 14th congressional district. Would, I'm not sure I would have recruited in that district. She would two be years the ago, first uh, African American to hold that seat, the first woman to hold that seat, and the first person under what, 40, 50 to hold that At seat? least yeah. under 40. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's not someone. She kind of came out of nowhere. She was someone. Came out of nowhere. And now it's you know leaning, and I'm probably be toss up by the end of September. So those are those are the races. So if we can keep doing that work, bring in 23 women, there'll be some good men who win too. Yeah. That'd be great. You know, Connor Lamb's there. He needs to win his reelection. You got some good. You got some good men running here in California, and Michael Levin, and uh, and uh, Ruda, and a few other guys. I mean, we got to. By the way, we got to pick up some seats in California. Like, yes. You know, I was with a group of supporters last night, and I said, for years I've come out to California, and I've asked you for your resources, and I've taken your resources, and I have spent them in Iowa, and Ohio, and Florida, and I'm here to say to you that I need you to give us money and continue to support so I can spend them in California. Do you know how time. much you're spending like, in California this year? We'll, we'll, we'll work. We don't, no, I don't know the amounts yet, but we'll be very, but very active. But a record active. amount, I would imagine, this year, given that your candidates Probably. Here. I mean, we did, We have historically spent a lot for like, Senator Barbara, or Barbara Boxer's oh, re-elections over the years, so the Senate races are so much larger. Uh, it's been very expensive here in California. Yes. But with uh, Katie Porter in the 45th and Katie Hill in the, in the 25th, those are two must-win pickup seats. Jessica Morris, uh, running against Tom McClintock, has turned that into a race. Also, yeah. that's one of those. That's still, another still one. Pill, that's another one yeah. where 
you know, we're going to need a little bit of luck, but we got the right candidate. We've got we've got a Republican who's a little bit caught off guard. She's outraised him two quarters in a row. That's stunning. I mean, you're sitting right. incumbent and you're getting outraised by a first-time candidate. <coughs> he's never had he's, real competition. No, not, which not means he's which brand. means he's out of practice. Yeah, yeah. you know, and and not as hungry. And that matters in these races. Uh, so we're hoping that we can bring two two of those home for sure. Uh, but we also have, you know, oh my gosh, I don't even know what the numbers are exactly, but dozens of legislative and local races in California that we're going to be finding ways to do some invest. There's smaller investments in those races. In, in the home stretch, you're going to be yeah. doing some investments there. Okay. Yes. We'll check in with the numbers on that uh, later. Stephanie, thank you for being on. It's Absolutely. All thank All right. you. All right. Anytime. Okay. And I'd like to thank my guests, Gina Ortiz-Jones and Stephanie Shriok. And I'd like to thank the Chronicle's managing editor for digital, Fernando Diaz, for producing this podcast. And I'd like to thank you for listening because whether you're a woman running for office or, as Stephanie says, a good man or anyone, anywhere on the gender spectrum, it's all political. <laughs>